Deep Done Podcast, Episode 3. I'm joined today by Dave Redding. Dave is a lawyer, a litigator, and a writer. He writes about how he practices law and how he chooses to live his life. Dave is also one of the founders of F3, which stands for Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith. Started right here in Charlotte, this organization is now spreading all around the country and all around the world. Dave thinks deeply about a lot of subjects, and he's incredibly forthcoming and straightforward and honest. We had a real conversation, and we touched on a lot of subjects. I hope you enjoy. You are a prolific writer, and you publish some of your writings on a website called collisionlearner.com. Um, what is collision learning? Well, collision learning is a uh, counterpart to say didactic learning. So didactic learning being classroom instruction, which we all undergo uh, at some point in our lives to learn basic facts. But collision learning is the way you take the, that knowledge that's placed into your head, what we think of as head knowledge, and you turn it into heart knowledge, like it's written on your heart so you can actually use it. And you do that through failure, argument, and adversity. Uh, so that'll sound, if you're a lawyer listening, it's like, oh, argument. And I mean it in the lawyerly sense of the juxtaposition of opposing viewpoints in order to learn, not just arguing because you're mad at each other, but that, that fruitful argument that, that comes from people with who don't think exactly alike, and they have a point and a counterpoint, and then that leads to, to learning in the same way. You know, you make a motion in court, and the judge is absolutely dependent upon that argument for him to make a just disposition of a motion. Uh, a legislative body is absolutely dependent upon uh, spirited debate, so it can pass just ordinances. Uh, and that's just the way it is in our society. If we lose argument, then we, we can't learn. So I draw a distinction between knowledge, like a, a fruit is a, or a, you know, a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom, you don't put it in a fruit salad. You know, you have to collision learn <laughs> the thing about to get the wisdom to take the knowledge and make it practical, practically useful. Otherwise, it's just bloodless. It just exists in your head. And so argument in this context, it sounds like it's a, uh, a process for refining your own ideas, uh, testing your own beliefs. And it strikes me that failure and adversity, the other two legs of the stool that you've just described, are sort of like the uh, the real life practical application of argument in that way that you you learn through unsuccessful life experiences uh, how to chart a course toward success? I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, one example that we use uh, for failure is I, when I learned how to fly an airplane, I was taught that if I ever flew into a cloud and I couldn't see, that I would not be able to fly, fly straight and, and uh, steadily because uh, you lose your sense of, of balance. It's a very odd thing. You know, I learned that, uh, that I would become disoriented. But I didn't really know it till I did it. So it was a piece of knowledge in my head. And then the very first time that I inadvertently flew in a cloud and I had this overwhelming feeling of panic. And what you're taught to do is immediately divert your eyes from the horizon, which doesn't exist because you can't see it, to your instruments. Because your instruments will tell you your attitude of flight, whether you're, whether you're, whether you're flying straight. Uh, and I really wasn't capable of doing it. The, the panic and the unnaturalness of diverting my eyes from the horizon kept me focused and luckily that cloud was was not very big 
because I learned my lesson that way. That was a, a great piece of failure that didn't kill me, that left me with the wisdom to be very careful about avoiding clouds. Well, it seems to me like what this mindset opens up is an opportunity to celebrate adversity, to be thankful for failure, right? It's, it's, it seems like it's an approach to the world which can be uh, – liberating and actually in uh, conducive to well-being in a way, right? Because when you're presented by an unexpected challenge or a situation in which there is a temptation to panic or to freeze, if you're approaching the world as a collision learner, it seems like you, you might be able to immediately in that moment recognize opportunity for growth. That's, that's a great way to put it. Uh, I think of adversity as the placement of obstacles in one's path. How they get there would depend upon your worldview. But uh, in the military, I was a soldier before I was a lawyer. We used obstacle courses constantly, you know. So you would have a five-mile course that you would run that wasn't smooth and uh, even. It was covered with obstacles that you had to traverse because that's what combat was like. Now, when you got to the end of that, you were exhausted, but the adversity that you fought through, like you looked at an obstacle and said, man, I'm afraid to climb that, or I'll never get over that, or it's too muddy and I don't want to do it, but you do it anyway. And then when you get to the end, having overcome all those obstacles, you're a much stronger and deeper person. And you can take that example and take it to life. And if you think, wow, if I get through this, that obstacle, you know, I look back at it, the adversity I faced by an obstacle that was placed in my path, not by design as far as I know just by happenstance and yet I traversed it and now I'm a stronger person as a parent maybe or as a husband or as a lawyer uh, any pursuit it is in fact the obstacles that you fight through that make you stronger there's something that you wrote about this process of argument and why it's important and you you make several points about it. Some of it is harkening uh, back to the Constitution and uh, <laughs> our, our shared set of values as American citizens and the importance of fairness and the concept of uh, evaluating things from more than one angle. And, and you're, you're going on about this in this article, and then you conclude it by saying this uh, as your final point. Finally, I don't really trust myself all that much. As a man of flesh and blood, I'm bristling with biases and preconceived notions of all sorts, many of which I'm barely aware. While I'm governed by a set of bedrock ideals, I know from experience that I am very likely to change my mind over time as I learn more. To learn more, I must seek adversity, court failure, and most importantly, engage in argument with those who believe otherwise." So this is intentional on your part. This is not something that you just stumbled. You thought through. You are you are going through the world intentionally seeking out difficulty, opposition because it sharpens your own thinking. And um, I wonder, as a result of that, if you've got any beliefs that you hold presently that you that you hold and that you want to hold but that somewhere in the back of your mind you suspect ah this might be one that uh that i may change one day sure well that's a great question uh i'm an, an adherent to the augustinian code which is uh unity in the essentials liberty in the non-essentials and charity in all things so i do have a set of what i consider to be essential beliefs that form the bedrock of my worldview and define the azimuth by which i set the course of my life those aren't not really up for argument. 
And at the risk of offending someone who disagrees with those, I'll just disclose what they are. One is uh, a faith-based one, which is the tomb was empty when the rock was rolled away. Because if, if it's true, uh, the resurrection is true, then the rest of the Bible is easy to understand. Right. So I, I came to that belief. Uh, I was a late comer to faith in my life. It wasn't until my 40s that I, that I became anything but a Davist, a believe in myself, Dave. You know, so when I did, uh, I fought through... Uh, understanding that faith in the way a lawyer learns the law. We're going to come back to this. How did your faith conversion occur? Uh, I eliminated everything else that didn't work and came down to the last thing standing. It was a practical strategy then? Well, it wasn't a strategy. It was that I had to admit to myself that I was a failure as a husband and as as I was a very young father. And I could see that um, the birth of my second child First child, I somehow kind of ignored myself, but it was the birth of the second child, and I kind of looked, use another airplane analogy, I kind of looked at my wife as a passenger on my plane who got on knowing I was a bad pilot, but the children were born as passengers on my plane, so the fact that I couldn't land safely wasn't their fault, and I was racked with guilt and shame uh, and fear that their lives were not going to be fulfilling and fruitful because I was such a poor parent. And so it made me work backwards and say, why am I such a poor parent? Well, I'm a poor parent because I'm a poor husband. Why am I a poor husband? And I, I had to look into myself and say, well, what is it I actually believe in? And the only answer I came to was that I only believed in myself. I mean, I was a, that's why I said, people say, well, you're an atheist. I say, no, I was a Davist. I believed in Dave. I was a, a self-centered person who put myself in charge of the world. So how did you then come from Davism to Christianity? Well, broken as I was, and I, I started to read, and I, the, one of the things I read was Mere Christianity, and it, it is a— It's, a, it's a C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis. Yep, and it's, it's a basically a—you like a, a, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, but it's, it's, a, it's a, it, sort of a rational uh, defense of faith— in a way, is that is it? Close? Yeah, that's a that's a way to look at it. Uh, or you could say that it's a lawyer's brief uh, on on belief. You know, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And he sets out a case in a way a good lawyer would argue to a jury or present a case, uh, try a case to a jury, which is you have to move a jury to your client's side. You have to persuade them to get there, and you you don't do that at yelling at them and insisting that you're right. You get at you get there by setting a foundation, building the blocks of a foundation of a case. So that at the end of the closing argument, you can say, and thus you should deliver a verdict to my client. It should be a natural progression of thought based on the evidence they've seen and the law that the judge reads to them so that you weave that together into something so compelling that even if they don't like your client, they have no choice but to say, but in this, sense, in this instance, in this instance, the, the, the just determination is in his favor. So that's how C.S. Lewis sets out mere Christianity from a lawyer's standpoint. I read it. It was like a legal brief to me. And, and I read through it, and it, it compelled me so much that by the end, I agreed with it in my head, though it hadn't moved me in my heart. So I no longer was intellectually a Davist, although I was still a Davist in the rest of my body. You're a searcher at that point. You're, yeah. uh, you're still looking. He, yeah. one, one of the things I recall he points out in that book is that there are things that we all know that— we don't have to be taught. And so, for example, uh, the concept of stealing or the concept of uh, if there's people waiting in a line, we all know that it's not the, right, the, the correct thing to do to go cut in that line, but rather the correct thing to do is to take your place in that line. And uh, it, it, 
abuts up on notions of like natural law, the, the sorts of things that exist separate and apart from the minds of men. And, uh, and, and then I don't remember a lot about where it goes from there, but I know he concludes in the end that Christianity is uh, the source uh, from which we find guidance, right? And so how did you get there then in your heart? Because it sounds like you, you, you glommed on to the, the rational part, right? You knew that there was something out there. And then what, how did the blessing occur for you? So great that you picked up that particular point because that was the turning point in the book for me. Because it was an it was an undeniable, uh, an obvious thing that you had to accept. There, we've never discovered a society or community anywhere in the world that celebrated lying. Or or murder, not of its individual tribe members. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It, the things that are wrong, are universally wrong. You know what we as lawyers would call malum and say rather than malum prohibitum. Well, and also the, a lot of the things that are right, right? are and so, universally and, right. But that doesn't get us necessarily to Christianity, and this is what sure. I'm trying to point out with you. So, for example, I very memorably at one point in my career was simultaneously representing uh, a synagogue, a Lutheran church, and a mosque. <laughs> okay, all three at the same time. And when they came in, I had three separate meetings with each one of these clients, and they all told me the exact same thing. They said. It's important to us in the handling of this dispute that we approach it in accordance with our faith. And what they meant by that, what they all three meant by that was everything needs to be founded in truth. Uh, we need to have, we need to be charitable and kind. You know, they're, they're appealing to universal values, but coming from three different faith traditions. And so I'm curious in your journey, how it ended up uh, as Christianity specifically and the emptiness of the tomb. And was, was that a cultural thing or was it more specific than that? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, if you accept that the universality of a certain set of truths, both right and wrong, uh, if you accept that, and I found that I, that I did accept that, is found something that I always, I always kind of knew, then you have to accept the fact that you believe in something that you can't do. So I believed, for instance, in, in that, it should, uh, should, that it's wrong to lie. And yet I was a liar. So how do I reconcile that? You know, and then as you go on in the in mere Christianity, piece by piece, what C.S. Lewis does is establish the fact that the difference between who we say we are, what we all believe in, and how we act has to be accounted for by something. And the something that he points to is the fallen angel, is, is, is Satan. And that Satan introduced that gap and he split us from the truth by introducing sin into the heart of man, and, it, and you are born into it. And if that exists, what agent can remove it from you? I had tried, I guess like most people, to conform to what I said I believed by sheer willpower, and I failed. I had a record of failure. No time in my life did I ever say, well, that's it, I'm, uh, I'm going to be a triumph of lying. I, I never said that. I just was a liar. So at this point in my life, and I was 43 years old, I've been practicing law for several years. I've been a soldier for nine years. I was a father uh, and a husband, and I knew that I was a. I, I knew that I, what he was describing as a, a fallen man. I knew that described me. So, and because he got me to agree with the problem, the problem being sin, he then proposed a series of solutions. Like he talks about different religions and and how you get there, and none of them solved the sin problem. None of them, and none of the quasi or fake religions 
you know, the secular religions that we engage in today. None of them solve the sin problem. That always is there. It's ever present. Uh, so there's only one religion that proposes a, a solution to the sin problem, or one worldview. It's not really a religion. One worldview, and that is Christianity, what, the following of Christ, and the idea that this sin, because it's on us and we are helpless, we are helpless uh, to shake it off for ourselves. We can't perfect ourselves. The only, only chance we ever have is to take that sin and allow him to take it from us, and that's, that's redemption, right? And that's, that's the only way through, and th- that's how I came to believe in that because I tried everything else, either intellectually or in actuality, I went through everything else. You know, I was a, uh, an Invictus believer. You know, I'm the, I'm the captain of my own ship. It's through my own sheer willpower that I'll do it. And then, I, then a little voice said to me, then why is your ship always in the shoals? If you're such a good captain, why, are you t- why is your ship on the rocks all the time? You know, and, it, and I, I finally gave up on it. I, I, you know, I think that's why. Uh, it's because of the way you're defining success, right? It's the, the, I think the way most of us uh, find our way through that problem is simply to construct uh, a worldview in which whatever we are doing is fine, <laughs> right? You're right you, your but own you rules. didn't do that, uh, right? No, I, I stopped doing it. Yeah. So like a lot of people, I had, a, I had my own set of rules. And then when I would violate them, I'd rewrite them to meet my conduct. And uh, I'm stealing this from somebody I can't remember who. Sure. But ultimately, I found my rules descending with my conduct to the point where I couldn't keep up. You know, my conduct was always one step below my rules. You know, I would just spend the rest of my life. It's kind of like uh, George Orwell saying some pigs, you know, all, all animals are created equal. Some pigs are more equal than others. You know, if you, uh, if you, if you. To me, the secularist, secular slash Davist worldview that I had was ultimately availed of nothing because it was a failure. And when I, I never understood this because I'm a Yankee and I really wasn't raised in a faith tradition at all. You know, my, my family didn't go to church. I had no real interaction with it whatsoever. But I finally understood what it was when a man would say, not that he became religious or he came to Christ, but that he surrendered to Christ because that's what it was for me. I surrendered my flesh. I said, I can't do it. Like an alcoholic who says, I am, I, I am hopelessly lost, right? This, this thing holds me and I need a higher power to pull me out of it. That's what I did. So that's how I got from starting at a Davist to a man who believed that there are certain truths that are self-evident, right? Certain inalienable truths that are self-evident and then all the way through that to the point that the only hope that I had was for a Savior who could take that sin from me and go to the cross with it so that I may in him be free. And that's what made me a Christian. Did it happen in a moment? I'm fascinated by stories of epiphany and revelation. Were, were you Paul on the road to Damascus? <laughs> or was this a process? It was a process uh, that started with a a moment. So it, as I got to the end of mere Christianity, and the, one of the very last things it says is, if you want to partake in this salvation, if you want to be free, you got to ask for it. And I'd never prayed other than kind of these vague military prayer, prayers, like when I was jumping out of an airplane, I'd say, God, if the chute opens, I'll try to be a good person. I guess that's a prayer, right? I think it counts. Yeah, I guess that's a prayer. But I'd never really said, directed my prayers to the Son of God. So... I, I did what the book said to do. Like, I, I dropped down on my knees, 
before I went out to work out by myself in the morning as I did in those days. And uh, in a very formalistic way said, I wish to be saved, I, you know, whatever it was. And I went out and did my little circuit at a four-mile circuit that took me past the Harris Teeter here in Charlotte on Randolph Road that I still go by all the time. And, uh, and, I, and, and I felt nothing. And I came back, and the next day I did it again and felt nothing. And then the third day I did it, um, I wasn't ready to give up hope yet. I, you know, uh, I, I didn't believe anything would be easy about it, but I, I said my prayer again and went out. And lo and behold, right when I got past that Harris Teeter, right where the Smashburger is on Randolph Road, I had this flooding, I guess it's not a revelation, it's flooding, epiphany is the right word, you're right, a religious discovery, an enlightenment, that everything that Jesus said he was that's recorded in the Bible was true, and that this head thing I had, this belief that that was the way out was true, and that was step one. I took another step in joy, because I knew the truth, and in the third step, I was overcome by crushing despair. Because if it was true, if I now believed in my heart, not, not just my head, that the things that Jesus said in the short three years that he walked the earth proclaiming salvation and the gospel, then I was hopeless because there was no way that I could take the man I was and conform to the man that Christ called me to be. I was just too lost. And I, I would say I was in despair for months. And uh, I... I didn't know what to do, so I prayed. And almost immediately, you know, in those times, men started to come to me. Um, I mean, out of the woodwork. And uh, I got a client once after mediation, ironically, look at me, and still my client, look at me and say, tell me where you are with Jesus Christ. And I said, well, why are you asking me that? Uh, you know, I was really reticent to say these things to him, but I did disclose it to him. And he said, you know, well, you're on the right path. Years later, Years later, I said to him, why did you, I guess you just used to ask guys that. I mean, that's what you do, right? And he said, you're the first person I ever asked that. I mean, it was things like that that reinforced in my mind that there was a living Savior behind all this who was directing actions. And if he could take a man, and this is something that you'll find in a Pauline um, you know, letter, a, Paul letter, a letter from Paul. If you take a man as sinful as me and as broken as me and as, as prideful as me, um, and he could open my eyes to it and, and save me, then he could save anyone. You know, because I was sinner of all sinners, as Paul said about himself. So, uh, are you still despairing? No. You didn't tell me about the end of the despair. I mean, oh, no, no. It seems no, to me like no. Jesus would be the first one to tell you that. It took okay, you got to forgive yourself, you know? You got to, you, you were a liar and you were broken right. and you saw the light and, but that, I, it, I, I was I was right there with you the, on that story. I was here. Well, I'm still, I thought it was going to be a moment of celebration. No, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It wasn't a it wasn't a glorifying moment of celebration. It was a process. It took about three years, uh, and during that process, many things happened. But you know, I'll just give you one example. I was struggling mightily uh, with my past, and um, I went to uh, a mentor of mine, one of these men who had interjected himself in my life to help me. And I and his name is Bill Greer. He's a man who lives here in town. And uh, I told him, you know, I don't think I can make it. I was, you know, I was, I was struggling. And uh, he said, let me ask you this. If we took every low moment of your life, the absolute low lights, and we made a movie out of it, how long would it be? I said, two hours. He goes, if the, if the rest of us were forced to watch it, we'd be nothing but bored. 
There's nothing you have ever done that hasn't been done under the sun uh, and nothing that we haven't done. And you need to understand that that ugly, dirty movie is the very thing that Christ wants to take off of you so you won't watch it anymore and put it on his back so that you can be free. That's why he did this. And, I mean, it was like a, it was such an obvious thing, right? It's, it's a gift. It's a gift. And, then, you know, I every time I tell my friend Bill that, he's like, I don't even remember saying that. <laughs> but it, but I, but, but he I, know, do. he knows it though, right? I mean, he believes it, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he may not remember saying it, but I bet he knows it sounds no, like he, him. he says, I believe what I said. I just don't remember right. saying it to you. Right. He's also the same guy who I said when I said to him, you know, and I, because I became a, a, a deep Bible studier, not a reader, a studier, because I wanted to know, like a good lawyer, I wanted to know the law. And uh, I went to him one day and I said, Bill, I don't, I'm really struggling with a lot of these miracles, you know. Yes. The parting of the Red Sea. Yeah. Turn water water into wine. Yeah. yeah, The the physical transformation, the magical stuff. Right. What's the story on that? And we're supposed to believe it. Right. And he said, look, do you believe on Easter morning that when the rock rolled away, the tomb was empty? And I said, well, yes, I've come to believe that. And he said, the rest of the stuff is easy. That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. Yep. Yep. So circling all the way back. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Circling all the way back. That is why for me. Uh, my faith essentials are only three. Number one, uh, place nothing above God, idolize nothing. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said those are the two things upon which the entire law of the prophets hang. And for me, number three is that the tomb was empty. You know, I don't know what your faith walk or system is whatsoever, but I have become a Presbyterian of all things, because weird, but uh, the fact that a Catholic believes in transubstantiation, and I believe in consubstantiation to me, is adiaphora. That's, that's simply a small thing upon which we do not have to have full agreement. As long as a Catholic uh, gentleman agrees with me that the tomb was empty, then we are free in liberty to disagree on the non-essentials. You know, that's the, that's the Augustinian code. You know, so that's why for me, those, those three essentials are it on the faith side. Now, on the governance side, like, how is it we should be governed while we are here on earth? I'm a liberal capital L liberal in the same way I'm a Christian capital C Christian without a without a without a modifier in the sense that I believe that there's certain inalienable truths that are self-evident they're born into our hearts the primary one being that all men are created equal and that means that the government has no right to tyrannize me or anyone else based on status and because of that those inalienable rights the pursuit of life liberty and pursuit of happiness cannot be taken in a taken away by any worldly sovereign and that makes me a liberal now I know that the, our culture has taken the word Christian and, and the word liberal and turned it all to d- different things, but I'm a very stubborn man. And I insist that I am a Christian, no modifier, and a liberal, capital C, capital L, no modifier. Because I think that's what America's based you, you upon. You make it sound like it's confusing, but <laughs> a huge part of your project and your output is the definition of terms you agree with me about this a huge part of what you do is to define words and phrases and to describe archetypes characters uh mr vice or captain vice the guy who plays the role when you're dining in in the military there's there's a whole bunch of there's fat tony or fat Fat, fred yeah okay right (laughs) but you've got all of the the these these types uh and these words and phrases that you define in your writings and it's a oh it's like a a semantic exercise it is a categorization of definitions 
through which everything else flows. And that's what I hear you say when you describe uh, a certain type of Christian and a certain type of liberal, right? Um, how is that for you? How do you, how do you find the process of writing? I'm, I'm curious about your approach to writing and the role that writing and thinking in this way, uh, plays in the formation or the sharpening of your own thoughts. Great question. Uh, because I write every morning for anywhere between one and two hours when I first get up. So it's a, it's a discipline. It started when I was in that three year process of coming to faith uh, I can't remember where I got the idea, but somebody told me that it would be helpful to write my thoughts down, you know, as I was, they were emerging in my mind. So I began journaling, just writing things out, and uh, they were pretty rough around the edges, you know, well, in the, around the edges and in the middle, they were all rough, you know, and I, uh, I filled two volumes of this stuff writing every morning, and I said to my wife one day, because I heard a sermon about it, I said, you know, I want you to, to read these. I mean, but I warn you, they're going to be hard to read, uh, but I want you to read them. Um, I don't, don't want them to be secretive, you know? And she, she said, okay. And then maybe a month or two later, we were on a trip uh, and away from the kids. And kids were little, and my in-laws were there taking care of them. And we were on a trip, and we're unpacking our bags in our room. And she pulls out the two journals, and I was so flattered. And I said, oh my gosh, you're really reading those things. I mean, that means so much to me. She goes, no. I brought them with us in case my mother's nosing around in your closet because if she reads these, we're done. <laughs> and I took them, <laughs> and I took them, and I threw them away that day. Yeah. Because their pur- their purpose was over. You know, I had done, they had served the purpose, but I was a deeply ingrained habit. Uh, I had a, now had a deeply ingrained habit of writing, and I began writing things that were fit for human consumption that I wouldn't be ashamed to let go. And that doesn't mean that they were flowery and thin. That just meant that, I took the care with them so that uh, it would be as unlikely as possible that they'd be misunderstood. Do, do you uh, write to figure out what you think? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I do to help guide myself along the way, kind of like the way you would write a brief. You know, the way I write a brief now, practicing law for 25 years, is I take the facts that I know, they're somewhere in the record, and I write them, and I take the law, way the law should be, and I write that, knowing that there's a case for it. And then I have somebody else go find in the record where they are and go find the law that can support it. I mean, that's a wacky way to do it, but that's kind of what I do now, right? No, I get it. I, I got to tell you, I, one of the experiences uh, in our profession that I missed out on is the mentorship of younger attorneys. Um, and it's... Um, I have, I, I taught at the law school, the Charlotte Law School for a while. So I had a little bit of instruction and uh, instructing uh, time in that way. And I have observers come to me to observe mediations. Um, uh, and I find that extremely rewarding because what it does is as we're, as we're going down the hall and we're talking about, we, wh- why did you say this? Or why did you say that? Well, why didn't you mention this thing that we know that maybe they you know the person in that room ought to have heard it gives me an opportunity to explain how i do what i do in a way that yields insight to me about what i'm doing uh and i found it i I find teaching to be an incredibly rewarding thing and you are fortunate enough to have the opportunity to have mentored younger lawyers how do you find that well i i think that's what to a great extent what i was what i was born to do so um, I learned law school just like you did. You know, we go to law school, you learn the law. And that tells you two things. It tells you the law, because if you pass the bar, you know the law. 
And it also teaches you, I believe, how to think like a lawyer, how to approach a legal problem, you know, like Iraq issue, you know, the whole thing, rule, uh, the whole deal we used to go through, right? Uh, now, let's, let's, let's define that. What is it? You, Iraq, Iraq is, uh, it's an acronym, right? right? It's right. I, it's the issue. Right. The, I'm explaining this for our listeners who have no idea, right? right, right. I, I don't, and I don't remember what the rest of them are. Oh, oh good, no, that's fine. It's like issue, issue, <laughs> issue. issue. So the issue is whether or not. Um, Just what the issue is, yeah, right? Yeah, right, what, what, what is the rest of What does it stand for? Oh, R is the rule of law. Okay, yep, right, the rule. There. And yep. A is its application. Yep. And C is the conclusion. There you go. All yeah, right, right, very right. good. That's so Iraq. Right? That's the essential tool of the, of the litigator, right? So, you know, uh, issue, whether or not. Uh, the government can force you to wear a mask uh, on the job. Rule of law. Well, right now, I guess we have OSHA or whatever. You know, whatever rule of law, there's application. There's a bunch of things, right? There's there's religious discrimination that comes into play. Oh, yeah, it's a bunch of things. So what what I believe an effective counselor at law does is that he is able to synthesize very complex rules of law, take the facts presented to him by his client, and give them the the most reasonable and best uh, prediction of the future given on whatever course of conduct that they determine to embark upon. So uh, that, that's really what a lawyer does, right? So a, a non-lawyer says, should I do the following, right? C- can I do this? And they go to a lawyer, and that's what they want to know, right? So as the lawyer, you say, tell me, I always say, tell me how I can help you. Tell me what you think the problem is, right? And then, I, and then they tell me, and it's, of course, it's not the legal problem. A lot of it's emotional. And then I say, tell me how you feel about that. And then they get all their feelings out. And, I, and then I validate their feelings and I say, whether I agree with them or not, I say, yeah, I can see why that's made you feel this way, right? And then I tell them um, what the likely outcome is and, and try to help them figure out a course of action that they determine for themselves is the one that um, best reflects what they want to do. And that, to me, that's the essence of it. Nobody really taught me that in law school. I don't think you can teach someone that in law school because right. – in law school, the client doesn't exist. They're just kind of like the bit players in the cases we read. You know, the, the heroes of the cases we read in law school are the judges, you know, and the justices. And, the, you know, the, the, the client, you know, the right. guy who sets up a spring gun in his house and kills somebody, that, that, that he doesn't really exist. And the litigator who first defends him and then takes his case to the appellate level he oh, well, who did discovery, who right. figured out what happened right. in the first place. That's right. right. And yeah. I, I'm not saying that there's another, I don't think there's another way to teach the law. I think the original Socratic method and all that is great. I have some strong feelings about how practically how we should do it now. You know, like I don't, I don't think it should be nearly as long, right. uh, for instance. But uh, th- that's head knowledge. You know, it's 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 really as you practice law that's right. that you get the heart knowledge where you find out, oh, yeah, tomato's not a fruit. That's or right. Fruit, well, right? I yeah. want to get at that because there's teaching the law and then there's teaching a lawyer. Right. And you uh, have had the opportunity to teach lawyers. And you wrote something about Ted Lasso, uh, an observation that you made of Ted Lasso that I think is relevant here. The way you describe that character is he's a man who leads people to the better part of themselves simply by assuming that it exists and acting accordingly. As hard as they try, people who come into contact with Ted find they cannot continue hating a man who refuses to stop loving them. I imagine that this admiration that you have for this character is relevant in the way that you conduct yourself in your profession. And I wonder 
how you handle it when you're faced uh, with an opposing counsel or a challenging situation uh, where the, the guy on the other side of the table does not take the same approach. Yeah, boy, I tell you what, getting right at the central issue of the difficulty of being a good litigator, because on the one hand, you know, we are at a hammer to drive nails. But on the other hand, if you see the world as a nail, I mean, <laughs> you, you're not going to be effective. And uh, I, so I have a story about that, and it is about a mediation. It's, I was in a mediation, this is halfway through my career where I was now, and it was one of those typical deals I'm sure you're faced where, you know, I, w- I think we were the plaintiff. We sent in an offer expecting we get a reasonable counter offer, and we got one of those $1 deals. Right. Right. And uh, my client is mad, really aggravated. I'm kind of scratching my head because, you know, that lawyer on the other side is the one who got me to, be, you know, use an early mediation. Right. right. So why, why, why did he do this? And uh, so uh, my guy's just, just angry as hell, and he says, well, we're not doing anything. We're just, you know— Let's just let's just pack it let's up. Let's just pack it up. He says, We're done. I'll tell you what. Send a dollar back. We'll we'll move a dollar. And uh, mediator says, um, "Yeah, we could do that." Yep. Yep. You, yep. What, what do you think is going to happen? And he says, "I don't know. I don't care. Uh, if we do anything else, it'll send the wrong message. They'll think we're weak." And my, the mediator said, "Are you weak?" And he said, "Hell no, I'm not weak." And he said, "Well, what do you th- what do you care what they think?" You know. And he's he's kind of at a loss. And he's, he looks at me. So, what do you think, Dave? And I said, uh, "Well, well, yeah. I mean, if we just keep doing, bit, you know, dollar by dollar, we're never going to get anywhere." I said, "I don't really like sending a reasonable offer back based on this, but you know, I see your point." Um, and and we did, and it, it went back and forth, and we ultimately settled it, right? Yep. And my client was was happy enough. On the way out, I walk into the other, you know, as you do, to say to the other lawyer and the and his client, and say, "You know, I'm glad we got it done. Shake his hand, whatever." And uh, I did, and they both at the same time were like, oh, yeah, thank God. Right. And it was such a weird moment. And I remember thinking, why, if they wanted to get it done so much, were they screwing around with this dollar deal? And it occurred to me because they were afraid. You know, they were afraid we would think they were weak. They right. wanted to settle it in the worst way. And basically what that mediator convinced, convinced me of was, don't, just because the other guy is a bad negotiator, don't you be a bad negotiator. That's right. No, that, that's a good mediator. I, I firmly, uh, I totally agree with that. I'm constantly recommending that we just play our own game and just do what we're going to do. Yeah. Just, just in, literally ignore what the other side is. They're just as though it doesn't even exist. Just right. follow your own plan. And that's that. Um, and you would, I, by the way, you'd be amazed how often it is the case that we spend the entire day moaning and groaning about how we don't want to settle the case and then we finally do settle the case and everybody is thrilled <laughs> i mean always. everybody always. <laughs> i've come to realize everybody always wants to settle the case <laughs> you know we spend all day talking about how we don't but we always do it's a it's a skill and and getting back to the mentorship what i teach young lawyers is you have to go into mediation with the client, your client knowing three things. He has to know the reasonable cost, or like the projected cost to get through trial and post-trial motions. He has to know how much time and energy it's going to take from him. And he has to know the like, substantial likelihood of out- outcomes, like the range, not the exact number. So you have to say, yeah, it's going to be $117,000 for me to try this case. And I have a spreadsheet, and I usually get pretty close. Uh, it's going to take a week. You're going to have to spend all this time with me. It's going to be extremely emotional when it's over. You know, I had clients tell me you did a good job. I've never had a client tell me he liked it. 
That's right. Right, and and I see the case. Take out the outliers. Here's the mo- here's the range of outcomes. And when I get, when I get into mediation, I used to do a lot of other things. But when I get in mediation, all I do is walk through the elements of my claims or defenses if I'm the defendant, and I look the other the party in the eye and I say, "You're going to have to. You got breach contract claim. You're going to have to prove formation, breach, and damages." I've got a waiver defense, and here's why I think it's going to win. And I just walk through the facts with them, and I get to the end, and this is why uh, I believe the most uh, likely were. And I tell them, you know, I I, I can't it, you know, because yeah. I'm because I'm an advocate, but and I, I am a huge believer in a, in the opening session as the plaintiff of making an opening demand in the opening session. Hmm. Of course, my client already knows what it is. It's not where I want to end up. Yep. But it's but I make that demand, and if I'm the defendant, I'm a huge believer. And making an opening offer to settle a case in the in the mediation, and you know you've mediated for in me the opening session in the opening session. So you know I don't want you in my room first, and the reason why I don't want you in my room first on either side is because I want you to already have everything you need. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to come and you know t- say to my client if I'm the plaintiff, have you considered how hard this is? Have you considered the fees? Yeah. Have you? you know, my you guy. got it. Yeah, you've right. already thought through all that. Let me let's let's dwell on this for a minute, okay? Because you you mentioned the opening session, and this is and this is get, at the risk of getting into the weeds of, of the details sure. of what we do, but right. but I, I think that's okay. Actually, I think I there's nothing I like better than listening to people who really know what they're talking about talk about what they're talking about, right? But the the opening session more and more. I'm getting people who want to just forego the whole thing entirely. Unbelievable. And they're, well, I agree with you about this. See, you and I agree about this and we agree about brackets and <laughs> we are in the minority on both things. Okay. And this is, it's baffling to me. So let me just expound on this for a minute. And then I'd like to invite your thoughts. The opening session is something that, and, and what this means for uh, our listeners who don't do this all the time is that at a mediation, it is a tradition and a ritual that the parties all get together in one room and have a chance to speak to each other and to the mediator about why they see things the way that they do. And then typically shortly thereafter, we split up uh, into different rooms and each party is kind of by itself and the mediator goes around and has private conversations with each of the parties. And that's a lot of times where, you know, you sort of, you're a little more unfiltered uh, in terms of what you're saying. But in this joint opening session, uh, there's an opportunity to speak directly to the other side. And uh, as a lawyer, I would never forego the opportunity to look the opposing party, never mind the lawyer, (laughs) I talk to the lawyer all the time, but to speak to the party directly and unfiltered. I, I can't believe that people give up that opportunity and the 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 most common objection that i hear is well we don't want to just you know we don't want to inflame the situation we're afraid that it's gonna you know and to that i say well just don't be inflammatory then okay just don't do it that way what what i would always do it sounds similar to what you're describing is I would let the uh, the other side know what I thought they needed to know, but in a very matter-of-fact, very non-threatening, just sort of, you know, hey, look, we're all reasonable people here. You know, this is what's going to happen <laughs> as the case moves forward. Here's what we will be showing uh, about this case. And people uh, want to skip it. And I don't, 
uh, I don't get it. I don't agree with it, but it is the clear trend. All right. Even more so than here in North Carolina, other parts of the country, they've almost like even the ritual it's done away with here. We kind of talk about, are we going to do it? Are we not going to do it? other places? They've just skipped it completely. And so I wonder what you think, like what, what is the opening session to you? Well, it, it is everything you just said it is. And a little bit more. I, I know from trying cases that when I make my closing argument, I'm looking at the jury. I also look at the adverse party uh, in my law firm, what we call the AP. I look at the AP a lot, and I realize that he's, for the first time, he's hearing the other side of the story. And I'll watch some of these guys' faces, and, uh, you know, I've elicited testimony and, and, and enter documents into, into evidence. But it's not until the closing argument that I tie it all together into a cohesive theory of the case, right? That the thing that I use to motivate the jury to deliver a, 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 a verdict to my client. So it's a complicated thing, but it all boils down to, maybe it boils down to, you know, I'm representing a general contractor and um, against a homeowner or, or an owner, and, and, I, and I, my theory is, or my catch line is, uh, you know, this house was built with human hands. In other words, there are small errors in it, but my client did the best he could, could correct them, blah, 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 you know, something like that. But I, I, I recognize in the faces of the adverse parties uh, during closing that this is the first time that anyone has summarized the argument of the other side. And it's too late to do anything about it. Right. So all mediators, and I was taught to this when I went to mediator school, says the same thing. Which is, you know, this is your last. This is your last opportunity to take control of this dispute, right? You can now fashion a resolution to this dispute rather than leaving it to the the whims of of twelve random people. I think that's a great thing to say. It's very true. It's what I tell my own clients when I'm preparing for mediation. So it's too late, you know. It's too late in the closing when the lights go on, right? Right for that adverse party. It's too late for him to do anything about it. Right, so, but at mediation, in that opening session, you deliver it to him then, right? Right, right. and I want them to know that I'm not, I am a, a zealous advocate for my client's interests. I'm confident enough to concede that which, Yes. right, and I'll concede. Every, every single fact, every single thing we know about this case is all part of the story, and That's it right. all supports our side of it. That's right, and yep. it's because it's, I'm a civil attorney, and it's the, it's the greater weight of the evidence, all I have to do is be one, one little jot or tittle over fifty percent. That's right. And I and I prevail. And I, you know, and I don't try to convince them that my client's a great guy, and I don't try to convince them that they're a horrible person. Yep. I it's, just try to convince them that it's the substantial likelihood that I will get one jot and tittle over fifty percent is something they need to consider, and listen to the mediator when he tells you. This is your last opportunity to fashion your own resolution. How did you learn how to do that? Failing the other way. So I used to do the PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. I used to do the browbeat, all yeah. those things. And I never settled any cases that way. You never persuade a man to move to your direction by first calling him a liar and a thief. So the great thing about being a lawyer and a litigator in particular is that you're constantly dealing with opposing counsel. Oh, yeah. you're, you're always dealing with these lawyers on the other side. And sometimes they're people that you know very well. Sometimes there's pe they're people that are friends. Sure. And sometimes it's people that you're meeting for the first time. But it's, it's a wide-ranging cast of characters. We all suffer from whatever pathology compelled us to go to law school in the first place. But beyond that, we're all very different, different personalities, different backgrounds. 
but you learn from them, or I learned from them. And uh, I learned how to do the closing, which then became my uh, mediation statement. It sounds like we have similar approaches yeah. to this. A uh, guy named Hal Spears. Do you know him? Sure, I've had cases with Hal. Uh, he did a closing in a case. Uh, it was an arbitration. And I heard it, and I just thought, that's it. That's how you do it. That's how I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I stole his trade secret. <laughs> how he did it. And what he did was he told the whole story from beginning to end, incorporating all of the major facts, including the ones that were supposedly bad for his side. Sure. You know what I mean? He addressed them totally up front and just said yeah that was said <laughs> you know this this was testified to but you know hey basically life is complicated and nothing is ever perfectly clear but you know here's moving right along here's what he did a he did a fine job with it uh, but and with a with a matter of fact delivery that i thought was devastatingly effective you know what i mean and no pounding on the table uh as though and and i think that when when you're doing this in your mediations or whether it's in court and the the ap is hearing it for the first time i think it might be really unsettling for them to experience the story being told from the other side in a way that's not crazy and but we need to hear that and we need to we, we need to have that approach as lawyers too right this humility that you bring to the world of ideas this um this yearning that you have for adversity and pushback and argument as you're trying to figure out what you believe and what you think i think is also essential to being a good litigator you have to have a good healthy skepticism of what your own client is telling you you need to be humble in your judgments or in your assumptions about what the other side is up to or what the you know what kind of person the other lawyer is and uh, do you find that's the case uh, as you're as you're conducting yourself or as you're working with younger lawyers? Uh, how do you counsel a situation in which uh, you are challenged in your ability to be like Ted Lasso and to find uh, to assume the good in others against all evidence to the contrary? Great. So uh, two branches to that, and I'll try to remember the second branch. Deal with the first branch. Uh, first of all, philosophically, I'm an andist rather than an orist. So I can hold two contradictory truths in my head at the same time, which all good lawyers should be able to do. Uh, also, if you disagree with me, that has nothing to do with your character. Uh, you can disagree with me and be a, a perfectly good person. And I assume that you are, unless you demonstrate to me otherwise. An orist is the opposite kind of person. You have to agree with him on everything. And if you don't, you're a horrible person. So he judges your character by whether or not you agree with him. Um, there are more andists in America than there are orists, but there's a significant number of orists that causes a problem. So by approaching a situation as an andist, I don't look at opposing counsel, what we call the OC. I don't look at the OC or the AP as as, uh, horrible people because they disagree with me. I assume that they're perfectly fine people until, until and unless they demonstrate to me otherwise. That's my assumption going in, and I accept the fact that we disagree on some facts, some material, some immaterial, uh, as part of the situation. It is a dispute, right? It's an intractable, intractable legal uh, uh, disagreement, right? That's why we're in litigation. And my job is not to belittle that, uh, that adverse party. In fact, when I cross-examine him, there will be very little of that. You know, uh, that's not, to me, is not a quality cross-examination, right? You wrote about that, and you said that 
it's a mistake to impeach somebody on every single little thing that you possibly can. Right. People misspeak, people misremember, and it's uh, almost a, a rookie move to try to beat somebody over the head with a misstatement that doesn't matter. And uh, the people can see through that. The judge can see through that. It annoys. Yeah, they, 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 they get they can tell the difference between things that matter. And I think it's a, uh, it's the mark of an inexperienced lawyer to go through a bunch of uh, formalities like it's a checklist uh, without any thought to how much it matters in the ultimate uh, evaluation of the story. But you can only get there. You have to have a certain level of confidence before you're able to let go of uh, of that checklist, don't you think? Yeah, it's it's lack of skill, and 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 we're getting to to the answer to your question is we just don't try enough cases anymore. So, uh, you know, for my first year of practice, I was a criminal and domestic lawyer in a small practice, and I tried 57 assaults on a female. You know, uh, so I I just got really a lot of reps across examination and then you know ultimately the light went on for me that it's a b c d that's the those are the fundamentals of cross-examination a being accuracy if i can point out that the witness's direct testimony was inaccurate regardless of the reason then then the jury has less faith in what he said if i can point out that he's biased that's the b like he has a skin in the game i don't have to call him a liar or anything i just say well you know this outcome would benefit you right simple and c capacity what he said on direct, he lacked sufficient capacity uh, to, to be able to state it. He said he saw the, the color of the light right before the accident, but he was on the 42nd floor uh, of a building, and he wears glasses, and he may not have had them on at the time. And, you know, so ABC should be the, the great bulk of what you do, and you just keep it simple. You said, but isn't it true that? So you said that you saw the accident, but isn't it true that you were on the 42nd floor? So you may have been mistaken. I never call a man a liar because mistake will work. As long as what he said wasn't true, right? Right. And he'll well, plus fight. it elevates you. Oh, it elevates you. But I, you know, I only found that to be after the fact. I just found that all my efforts to prove a man a liar were so difficult because the man will fight tooth and nail. This right. Is, this is art of war. Right. So, totally. Right. Art of war. You leave a man a back door to go out of, and you say it's possible that you're mistaken. He knows he's wrong. Right. But if you call him a liar, he'll fight you to the death. But he'll be willing to admit that he was mistaken. So but here's what this conversation is about, Dave, right? Everything that we started talking about, about your journey of faith and the way that you approach the world of ideas is directly relevant to the way you practice law, right? I, I mean, hope so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think it, and it's what's interesting to me about it is that we're not just talking about how to be a good, a, an ethical lawyer or how to be a nice lawyer. I think this is about how to be effective. Effective. I think this is this is very much how you win cases, right? By being decent, by refraining from uh, uh, calling somebody a liar, even though they are a liar. That you you're you're gonna win more. You're doing a better job in that way. And I don't think um, I think this eludes a lot of people. It's like advanced practice kind of it, stuff. It shouldn't be, but it, you know, I don't. Yeah, but don't you think it is? I mean, I, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I, I don't. I don't keep a record. I think in terms of my mission as a lawyer, which is to prepare for trial in order to resolve disputes. So first thing I teach a young lawyer is this is what we do. You know, the office space, right? When Bob say, what is it you do here? You know, and right. each guy's like, ah, uh, you know, they can't explain it, right? This is what we do here. We are litigators. We prepare for trial in order to resolve disputes. It doesn't matter where on the path towards the end state that that dispute is resolved. 
it's very unlikely that it'd be resolved in the pleading stage. Yeah, everybody's still mad and they haven't paid any legal bills. Pretty unlikely yeah, it's going right. to be resolved at trial too, uh, well, right? You know, I mean, it, it sometimes it takes a lot longer, you know, for people to see the truth, right? But at some point in time, we'll resolve the dispute. Whether it goes to trial or not is outside of my control. The only thing inside of my control is how well I prepare for trial and doing those things that I need to be prepared. So for me, a, you know, quote, unquote, win is a resolution of the dispute that is favorable to my client on a net basis, whether whatever he had to pay or take or, or, or leave on the table to get out of it, absent what he has to pay me, like less what he has to pay me, if that is favorable, if I've left him in a better position than when we started, then I have been effective. Now, the fact that along the way, I don't raise the ire of opposing counsel or energize the adverse party unduly to fight, right? If because of my comportment I, and, and because I'm respectful with them, I don't energize them to fight when fighting won't help, then I'm just being more effective at resolving the dispute earlier and less expensively. Every once in a while I get fired. And usually when I get fired, it's for the same thing. It's not because I didn't call back. It's not because I didn't, it's because the client wants me to do something that I don't believe is effective. And that's to, to do the D of cross-examination, which is diminishment. He wants me to diminish the character of the adverse party. And, and I, I will not do that except as lightly as, as necessary in the trial itself during cross-examination simply to reduce the effect of his direct testimony. And they want me to do it. And, if, and I say to them along the way, I said, if that's what you want, you've got the wrong guy. Yeah. I will do anything that's legal and ethical, yep. but I will not do anything that harms your interest and that will harm your interest and go find another lawyer because there's guys out there that will there's guys out there that will do that for you. Yeah, and this is what I was trying to get at before. How do you handle that? Like if you're if you're trying to live like Ted Lasso, if you're tr- and you are, if you're trying to assume the best of everyone that you're dealing with, it is a reality of our professional life that you encounter people who take a different approach. And there are people... Yeah, slightly. There are, I know, yeah, I yeah. understated that a little right. bit, right? I mean, but there's... Um, but it, it creates practical challenges because you, you as an advocate, you as someone with a duty to uh, advance the interests of your client, can be disadvantaged by the unethical behavior of your uh, opposing right. counsel sometimes, right. right? So sometimes, yeah, just for example, like if, if uh, somebody gives an excuse uh, or just represents to you, you know, like their documents don't exist or the documents have been destroyed or, you know, something along those lines. You know, Ted Lasso, assuming the best in that person, might say like, well, okay. And I've seen lawyers practice that way and I admire it greatly. You know what I mean? I I think there's – it is. I've, I've seen on many occasions, and I've been part of these conversations, where somebody has said something and explained something, and the lawyer on the other side said, okay, you said it, I accept it, it's sure. true. But you can be disadvantaged sometimes, right? Because it's not always true, right? And there's things that you can do um, if you keep digging under rocks uh, to discover really what is true. I wonder how you handle those situations. So this is what you do, in my opinion. Um, you start out with the idea that that not all lawyers who go to court are litigators. For me, litigator is capital L, like liberals, capital L. It's someone who is committed to the to the resolution of disputes for the preparation of trial. There's a tremendous number of lawyers who go to court who are what I call processors, capital P, and they just engage in the process for the purposes of making money and avoiding the truth that they're not litigators. You know, they're just lying to themselves. 
And what processors do is they get off what I think of as the critical path of litigation, which is pleadings, you know, discovery, uh, the, the four judgment. stages, summary, as your law firm yeah, defines summary it, summary right? judgment, yeah. mediation. You know, these are what I call the critical path, the things that are most difficult, longest in duration, and absolutely necessary to resolution. Everything else off the critical path is a what I call a complication, and a processor plays complication hockey rather than litigating the case. Uh, so he does things like force noticing a deposition, doesn't call you, right? He puts a, a hearing on without without asking you. He, he requires a Rule 37 letter to give you a single piece of paper. Right? I'm, I'm going to venture a guess that this same individual uh, is going to get involved in some kind of e-discovery oh, dispute always. with you. <laughs> right, always. You know, they're, they're, they're the kind of people that want to, to go back and forth over, you know, a, a, a confidentiality agreement or something. Yeah, it's just, th th this is what they do. And once you separate that in your head and you say, okay, I'm going to focus uh, on, on my litigation team, which is a senior and a junior and a paralegal, because I always approach it that way. As the senior, I'm, I am absolutely focused on the, on the critical path. And I don't generally engage in complication hockey. That's part of what a junior has to, has to do and has to learn. I counsel them on it you know, and, and help them with it, and paralegals as well. Uh, but I don't allow myself to get sucked into it. I also don't worry about it. So the client gets upset. We're losing momentum. Da, da, da. I'm like, no, they're playing complication hockey. At some point in time, they're going to hear these words. Are you ready to put on a case? It, the, you know, the jury is with you. And they either are going to be or not going to be ready to do it. And complication hockey doesn't get you ready to do it. Right. So, and I try to, have, I try to persuade my, my clients of that. Uh, a young associate doesn't see that because he's just fighting the fight. Over, over time, they start to understand that, and they, and they get it. First time you get a young associate all the way through a trial, the pieces all become clear to him. He says, now I understand why you made me write the jury instructions even before we wrote the complaint. That's right. right? Yes. It's, it's not the last thing you do. It's the first That's thing. That's right. right? Yes. Yes. You know, because this is what we're going to have to prove. So, Are jury instructions the best? Well, I mean, it's the clearest, it's, most distilled uh, law that you need right. to know. I mean, it's, you're better off reading the jury instructions than the leading cases. Well, right? I have, through practice, I have great swaths of North Carolina's pattern jury instructions committed to memory. So in a closing, you know, I'm basically saying the judge will tell you. Right. Right. And, and I, I tell him something that... that, that and I, then the judge tells him exactly right. that. Exactly that. <laughs> right. And I said, the judge will tell you that I have the burden to prove this element of this claim by preponderance of the evidence. And I, he will tell you that what the preponderance of evidence is and that you are the ultimate judges of the credibility of the witnesses. You know, and I tell him all those things. And this is why you should say yes to this element. I've shown you a contract. It's a written agreement. Both parties signed it. It has the elements that are required. It has an offer. It has an acceptance. It's supported by adequate consideration. That's just the jury instructions, right? And so often I'll hear an attorney, you know, in, in trial who's not very experienced wandering off on some elongated, you know, uh, analogy or just micro relisting of the facts. Right. You got 12 jurors. They heard the case. Amongst those 12 jurors, every single fact Every single thing that's been said has been recorded. That's why we have 12. You don't have to stand up there and say, and then this, and then this. You do that's them right. no good. Well, they're very smart. They're very smart. They're and smart. They've got common sense. Right. They've been paying attention. They're diligent. People try hard on juries. Like, they take their responsibilities seriously. Uh, they they got it. They got it. And you got, yeah, it's a, 
it's hard to let go though of like what I, what I would think of as a, as a crutch. The the what I referred to as a checklist before. Yeah. Uh, the sort of a uh, there's a style of depositions uh, that some lawyers where the, the whole first hour is just like okay, uh, Mr. Redding, state your what's your address? Right. <laughs> you know. Well, and, they, they're and, they're reading something they've heard before. And, you know, they go through this whole thing about we can take a break and all this stuff. Yeah. Like there's so there's just a couple of things that, you know, I would never say in a deposition because that's not what I use the deposition transcript for. Yeah. I mean, I, I use the deposition for, just for two reasons of the of the primary hostile. That's what I call them, the primary hostile. Yeah. It, it, and, and one is to get every single fact that he's going to say that's going to be harmful to my case and helpful to his. Yeah. You know, so it's oh really, yeah, right. every bit of it. Every I want to I want to hear a speech about it. I, yeah. What I'd really like to do is ask you kind of in an open-ended sort of way to please just sure. tell me everything tell that me you to, think. Right. What my favorite deposition transcripts are the ones where there's like Mr. Dunn is like one line and then there's like four paragraphs <laughs> or two pages right. of exposition because right. there's just nuggets of gold in that transcript. Well, nuggets of gold is the second thing. So the nuggets of gold are the things that I can use on cross-examination. To, to prove to him that, right. he, that, that whatever you said on direct is wrong, right? So, so given that, the one thing I don't need is, is 18 pages of, you know, have you had a chance to prepare? You know, uh, do you understand what a break is? Yep. You know, all that stuff. I just, you know, I just say, what's your name? How are you employed? And, and just launch into it. I mean, I don't, yeah. need, you know, I don't need all the rest of that stuff. Uh, so I don't do that. And in mediation, the one thing I never say that every other lawyer says for some reason is, you know, we're here to negotiate in good faith. Yeah, right. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, and it's such a funny thing and illustrative of how lawyers are, are, are improperly taught. There's no statutory, regulatory, or other ethical requirement that you come to mediation and negotiate in good faith. You just have to come there. You have to appear at the arranged time with someone with you, a representative of the client, who can settle the dispute. Right. There's so much of what we do as lawyers or what some lawyers do that is completely meaningless. Right. Like, I, like I find that I, like in, in drafting contracts, for example, like there's a lot of stuff that people put into contracts. that just doesn't mean anything. Nope. It doesn't add anything. You Sur know what I mean? Surplusage. And, and I, yeah. And I would always leave that stuff out. And for the, probably the first like 15 years of practice, for, for I guess for the first five years, I wouldn't leave it out. Right. And then for the next five years, I would start to chip it away and then by the end when i'm writing contracts i'm like just say what the deal is and that's all it needs to say you, do, you don't need to say that like the genders like whether i say he or she it means the same thing you don't have to say it's the big it's the that, go by it's, yeah it's the, it, it's lawyers tendency to want to repeat what was done in the past because they think that's a safe harbor yeah exactly because yes. we're not very innovative just as a thought exercise i will generally say at the end particularly with a young lawyer if he's the OC on a, on a case in mediation, I will say, we're not here to negotiate in good faith. We're here to resolve the dispute as quickly and efficiently as possible. And it will almost always get the other guy to say, well, we are here to negotiate in good faith. I don't, and he gets completely distracted by that. Yeah. And it, 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 it's such a funny thing. Why, why would anybody think that a lawyer, a litigator hired to advocate on the best, for the best deal his client could ever get would be negotiating in good faith. Good faith is what 
parties to a contract are obligated to do. Yeah, but see, I, see, I don't object to it. Like, I, I, I consider it almost like a salutation, you know? A I, worthless salutation. It, well, all salutations. And are it's a lie. No, they're, they're, they're not worthless. They're, they're, they have the worth of, like, establishing. What they're trying to tell you is that they're there in good faith. They're, they're trying to say, like, we're, we'd like to settle the case, right? It's just it's no different from saying good morning. Like, are, do they really care if you have a good morning okay, or not? But, so, but you say it because it's polite, right? So for me, and no offense to you, if, sure. you, if you have this yeah if you drive around charlotte and i suppose other cities people put signs in their yard that say thanks yeah you know a variety of things but one i see a lot says something like i believe in love i believe in science right. a bunch of stuff like that right i'm very relieved to say i don't have any signs okay, yeah. i also right. don't have any bumper stickers on my car sure. <laughs> because i'm an andist i believe you could have that sign and still be a perfectly wonderful person but my point about the sign itself is Posting a bill of your strongly held beliefs in your yard doesn't mean anything. It's it's simply yard sign activism or yard sign utopianism. Sure. And and what you're doing is wish casting those things. Like I, I wish that these things would happen. Right. And and I'm adverse to that because I'm I'm much more a believer in doing things right. to make it happen. Yeah. And I can't persuade you to drive safely through my neighborhood by putting up a sign that says drive as if your kids live here. Right. I spend my energy teaching my kids how not to go on the road because bad drivers are always amongst us. And if you're a bad driver already, a sign isn't going to change your mind. And I think that's kind of yard sign utopianism. It just drains the energy out of from what we do. So when you I'm, think it's counterproductive yes. to action. So yes. you think not only is it uh, fluff and unnecessary and meaningless, but you think it's actually the opposite. You think it, yep. it inhibits the spirit that that it's detrimental to the stated yep. purpose of the sign. Absolutely. And in the context of mediation, I'm not going to tell you that I'm here to negotiate in good faith. I'm going to show you. Right. I mean, in the same way. It, yeah, but can't you do both? I mean, I, I'm well, I'm struggling I, with, I, the, with the with the with the with the leap that uh, that your expressed value is in fact that expressing your value in fact uh, detracts from your uh, acting in accordance with that value. I'm not so sure it detracts, but I think it raises. At least raises suspicion in my mind as to whether you really mean it. So, well, for that matter, I mean that's like when you meet with your client for the first time. You when you walk into your client's office for the first time and they've got a big cross with Jesus on it by the side, right. and then they have Jesus loves this workplace, and then they and the first words out of his mouth are you know like, you know, maybe the client asks every single person, every single person that crosses his path, like where are you with Jesus Christ? Like that's a that can be a red flag sometimes, Dave. <laughs> this is a great. Uh, back and forth we're having because I was going to give you that precise example. When a man hands me a business card with a fish on it, right? No offense if your has has yours on it. You could still be a wonderful person. Sure. Yeah. It. I. I'm suspicious as to whether or not he really believes it or he's wish casting. You know. And when somebody goes to great extents to tell me what a great guy he is or what good faith he has, you know, uh, and he makes a sign out of it, I'm like, do you believe it? And why aren't you just willing? and patient enough to show me. Because in mediation, I will show you that my intention is to resolve the dispute as quickly and efficiently as possible. And I will show you by giving you the information that you need to make a decision, even if your own lawyer hasn't done that, and then encouraging my client and leading him to make offers that are reasonably calculated to get us to a result uh, middle. I will show you that. And I'm not gonna tell you first, I'm just gonna show you. Because I believe that that's commitment. Now, 
this goes to the other side of my life, which is the leadership side. Yeah. The, the five characteristics of the virtuous leadership all have a C on them, you know, and the, the first one is, is candor and that's graciously telling the hard truth and demanding to hear it from others, right? That's what, that's what a leader does, right? And graciously telling the hard truth is something that's very difficult to do. And this goes back to the, your original question is why we don't have an opening in mediations anymore is because we are losing the ability in our culture to graciously tell the hard truth. Yes, yes. And, and alongside of it is a fear of hearing it from others. You cannot be a leader unless yes. you are willing to look another man in the eye and tell him the truth with love. Because it's a strange kind of love that leaves a man in a lie. And when I'm in a mediation, I think of myself as a leader. Actually, I think of myself as a leader when I'm in the Harris Teeter. And, and because that's what God has charged me to do. So when I'm in a mediation, I waste no time saying fluff. There's no surplusage. I'm diving right into the things that really, really matter. That really, really matter. And those are the material facts that are, that are not in dispute or are provable to, to 50% plus one jot and tittle and the law that governs the final resolution of the case. And I'm not going to spend 10 seconds in any fluff or any other stuff to, to wish cast or engage in litigation utopia. I'm just going to lay it out. Here's the case. Here's what I have to prove. Here's what you have to prove. And here's why I think you can't prove it. I hear what you're saying. Um, we, we agree almost, almost. entirely. Yeah, almost, almost entirely. Right. I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff that you're saying that I agree with absolutely completely. But right. the, I guess the only thing I would say is that um, as to the, the, what you describe as the wish casting or the, the, the meaningless symbolic gestures, I agree that they don't add value. But if let, let me put it this way, if you're gonna engage in that behavior, I would rather you be projecting the right values as opposed yeah. to the wrong. Like I'd rather have somebody with a sign on their yard that talks about love and acceptance than somebody with a sign on their yard that says everybody who voted for the other candidate should just go to hell. You know what I'm saying? Well, in a sense, though, when you advocate for something you're automatically advocating for its antithesis. And I do believe there's a certain viewpoint that engages in yard sign activism. I mean, when you say, I believe in science, that is a, it's not a direct attack on someone who is, faith, is faith-based, but we can figure it out. I get your point. When you say, I believe in science and I believe in love, essentially you're saying that the fact that I am governed by a, a, a creator you know, who I believe also created science, by the way, the fact that I do that means that I don't love. So it's my secondary argument against yard sign I, 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 I totally see where you're coming yeah. from. I really do. I guess if, if as the mediator, let's put it, let's bring it to this example. I would much rather have somebody say we're here in good faith than to have somebody say, screw those guys. No one says that. See, that's the, that's my whole point uh. is no one is rolling around saying those things, even though that is if you could get over on the other side and trick them for your client's benefit, most people actually would. I mean, it's, it's, number one, it's an inherent untruth. And number two, you could show me, you could convince me much more effectively by showing it to me and by saying it, you're also implying that that's not true of me. And I, 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 I find it to be a product of bad lawyering. Now, I'll, I'll give you another example. In deposition... Uh, there's two things that I see inexperienced lawyers doing or process litigators doing. 
One is they want to sequester witnesses, and two, they absolutely want to shut down the other lawyer from saying anything. So, you know, like, oh, I don't want the husband and wife in there together. Right. You know, I want them in there together. And in fact, if I'm asking the husband a question, like, well, you know, when did you first realize that the door was put in backwards? And he's like, ah, and his wife yells out, it was Tuesday, January 5th. I'm like, I look at him, I'll go, is she right? See, I want the information. You just want to know. Right. Yeah, no, I'm the same way in depositions. Yeah, I, I literally want right. to know everything that you think you know. Like, right. Everything that you think you're going to say, everything that you think your story is, I want it all out. That's right. Um, yeah, and no, I, that, that, I'm the same way. And I tell him, and I mean it. I was like, I don't want to, in trial for the first time, I don't want to hear this information. I want it now. So I can, I, I said it yesterday. I was in a deposition with a very good and aggressive litigator, one of the best litigators in town. And, and I said to his client, I said, I, you know, I just... And I, t- I would I tell him, here's why I'm asking that. Here's what my client needs to know. What are you going to say in trial? Is that what you're going to say? You're saying it now. I want to make sure that this is everything that you've got. And every little bad little thing, because yep. I believe in candor. Got to know all I of gotta it. Know That's all right. Yep. Also, I asked a question that was was unintentionally misleading on my part. Like it, right. And and it wasn't a perfect question. And the other lawyer didn't say just objection. He said, Dave, if she says that she knows of no representations that your client made, she may be also including the warranty that your client put in the contract, which is true. Right. I wasn't trying to trick her. Right. And I said, thanks. Good point. Good point. Yep. That's ex- that, I didn't intend that. Ma'am, here is the question I wanted to ask. Other than the warranty my client, the written warranty my client gave, did he make any other representations to you? She says, like what? I said, did he ever tell you, for instance, that the roof wasn't leaking? She said, uh, no, he never said that. Do you know of anyone that he did tell that to? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, perhaps one of your coworkers said, you know, Bob told me the roof wasn't leaking. Do you know of anybody like that? And she said, no. I said, good. See, the young version of me, when my opposing counsel said, do you mean, I would have said, hey, you were allowed to say objection. This and objection. is my deposition, right? right yeah, that's right. right. But it yeah, was—it's yeah. counterproductive. Oh yeah. Like you know, he's aggressive and he's effective and he's skillful. So twenty—and I've known this guy for twenty-five years. Yeah. I used to be afraid of him. Yeah, you're you know, very, you're very complimentary of him. Are you willing to name him? Yeah, John Burek. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, of course I will. He's a very effective lawyer. Yep. And uh, we've had many, many cases together. Yep. And don't always and we. We had a shouting match on the phone the other day about a different case. Uh, no, we were, he's, we were, getting into a shouting match with John Burek is does, is not indicative of any kind of real. But I mean com- it. <laughs> I mean it in the best way. Yeah, he no, was, no, he's a zealous advocate. But you know, after our deposition yesterday, he started to say, you know, we both conceded points about our case. We're halfway to you know to 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 settle in the case, hopefully. Right. But you know, this is my uh, that 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 that's kind of my point is like. I think that the reason why lawyers aren't making opening statements anymore is because they're not being equipped with the skills they need to litigate. And they're afraid to graciously deliver the hard truth. They, they're afraid to look the, at AP in the eye and tell them how the case is going to come out. And they're also afraid to have their client and themselves hear it. That's right, because can, can, being candid is graciously telling the hard truth and demanding to hear from others because they're, they're afraid to do both right? They will do neither. And they say, let's just dispense with it. Now, the last C of the characteristics of a virtuous leader is courage, is courage. And that's the ability to set aside fear to turn hardship into grace. 
It's not the absence of fear. Only a sociopath has that. That's right. Right. You, it's, you have fear. Like I'm afraid of losing a case. I'm afraid of being, making a mistake. I have it. I, I set it aside so I can take the hardship, the adversity, the failure, all that. And instead of being defeated by it, turn it into grace, you know, and it's you, when you're afraid you that, make all the mistakes. Yeah. Well, but it's also when you're afraid is the only opportunity that you have to be brave. Oh, great point. Yeah. Without, without fear, there would be no such thing as bravery because bravery is the setting aside of fear. It's the overcoming of fear. And you learn that very quickly in the military. That's where I derive that from, uh, as do I many things. But very clearly is because they, uh, you know, the first thing they tell you is military service is kind of weird. It's like hours and days and hours and days of great drudgery and boredom interspersed by brief moments of actual and absolute and sheer terror. Right, right. You know, so it takes 47 hours to, to get ready to jump out of an airplane. And, the, and the, the second that you do it is sheer terror. I don't care who you are. Uh, it was for me. And, you know, leading up to that, you're like, oh, God, you know, it takes forever, whatever. And then you have that brief moment. So, to, so it's in that brief moment when you're standing in the door of an airplane, a perfectly good airplane while in flight. That's right. right? <laughs> and you say to yourself, I'm going to do one of the most unnatural things a man can do is I'm going to leap out this open door into the great uh, wide horizon and hope that this hunk of silk that uh, strapped to my back is going to fully open, fully deploy, and, and decelerate my, my ascent sufficiently so I don't kill myself. You know, Dave, you've been unbelievably generous with your thoughts and with your time. Do you have a moment to talk about F3? Yeah, sure. You, I will. Oh, yeah, okay. I know course. you got somewhere to be and I'm keeping an eye on yeah. the clock for you. But uh, so F3 uh, for anyone who doesn't already know what it is, is an organization of men who get together in the early mornings to work out. And you are one of the founders, you and Tim Whitmire, yeah. I believe, put it together and the essential uh, characteristics of it are that, number one, it's free of charge. You don't charge any money for this. It's open to all men. You hold the workouts outdoors. Uh, it's peer-led, so the participants on a rotating basis lead the workouts. And then at the end of each one of them uh, is a process that you refer to as a circle of trust. And this is a... A program that you started several years ago uh, that has become, it's really taken on a life of its own. It's, it's taken on a momentum. You're now, you, there are now F3 chapters or, or there's people doing workouts in most of the 50 states and almost all of them, plus some countries yep. around the world. And it's growing all the time. And uh, I'm curious, is F3... Um, is it an effective means of getting in shape or is getting in shape an effective part of something else? Uh, yeah. Okay. Good way to put it. The uh, it's three S fitness, fellowship, and faith. The fitness is the magnet fellowship is the glue and the faith is the dynamite. So, uh, it's very easy or relatively easy to get a man to join you to work out together. I mean, if you say to a guy, hey, come to a Bible study, he's like, ah. <laughs> if you say, to, you know, just walk up to a stranger, we as men, as grown men, walk up to a guy you barely know, and you're like, hey, uh, well, let's get a cup of coffee together, whatever. The guy could be dying inside to do it, but he's become culturated against doing it, right? Because the last moment in time of a man's life in which he's encouraged to make male friendships just for the sake of making them is college or the military for me. After that, grow up, you know, 
go home, be a family man. Like the only two times you can gather together with other men are for complete, you know, debauchery, like a golf weekend or for something completely, you know, uh, uh, virtually pure, like, you know, uh, going to a blood drive or something. Like, everything in between is viewed with suspicion. Why are you men in there? Why aren't there any women? What's going on there, right? Right. So, you know, we lose the ability as men to make friends and we're desperately lonely. We don't want to admit it to ourselves. The unhappiness that we feel on the inside, we mask with a, with a mask of happiness on the outside, which we call sad clown syndrome. F3 is the cure for sad clown syndrome. Right. So you're unfit, right? You know you're about overweight, 30 pounds overweight or whatever it is. We call that POGO 30. You lose it, you gain it. You lose it, you gain it. Right. right. You know, the, the gym doesn't work consistently. Diets don't work consistently. Whatever you lose, you gain back. Um, F3 is a way to stay fit. And it's that easy magnet. Hey, come out and work out with me. Well, I don't know. I said... Do you mind having a free workout? Are you already in good shape? No shape? Well, no, all those things. Good, I'll pick you up tomorrow morning at 5.30. Damn, that's early. Yeah. And I'll be outside your house, and, and, and there you come. All right, so you go out there. First time you uh, throw up, we call that splashing Merlot. Uh, there's all this language, this lingo, this lexicon you don't understand. Well, so even, even in today's conversation, we've referred to you know, your OC and your AP right, and right. your litigator with a capital L right, and right, your, right, your, your right, Christianity right. with a liberal with a capital L. Right. And so there, there is a whole like, – you have a glossary on the website yeah, of yeah, all the lingo. And if yeah. you go on Twitter or if you go and you read the blogs, F3 has formed this whole culture that exists around it. And, and, you could, and some of the stuff that you've posted online, I, I can read it. And literally have no idea what you're talking about. Right, right. So I, I, I th some things I write I direct to the, what we call F3 Nation. Right. Some things I don't. So, uh, yeah, if you read an F3-ish thing, you're going to find it uh, – you might find it so opaque you give up. And uh, th that's just the way it is. But that's part of it, that's, right? That's I mean, there, because there's a community aspect of it as well. There's uh, sort of a um, – they're, they're, the people who are into it are really into it. I mean, if anybody who drives around Charlotte, I, I think, and is a professional person, knows several people who work out at F3. And right. you see F3 stickers on the back of people's cars. And it seems to me that the the lingo and some of the rituals, the, the ritualistic aspect of things, the sort of the core tenets of the things, the things that define the thing, which is a very Dave Redding thing to do, yeah. right, uh, that they – are part and parcel of why it is so compelling to the people who do it. And that and that being a part of a community is part of why people are so excited about it and why it works. And what I was getting at is, is it something that works? Is the whole point of it just to get in shape, right? And what I think I hear you say is that that that's great and valuable for sure and a lot you know a lot of us need that uh no doubt but that there's more to it than that that there that's that's sort of the the excuse for coming together and having male friendships and talking about larger issues as well sure well the three holes in any man's heart right as he gets older are inconsistent fitness you know you don't have to watch fox news very long before you see 17 commercials about you know fitness products or way to lose weight or whatever. Yeah, that's a, that, that's just a ubiquitous thing amongst a, a middle-aged man, right? Inconsistent fitness. Our body is inherently important to us, regardless of your worldview. So we have that problem. Uh, second problem is male loneliness. And, you know, when the New York Times started writing about male loneliness, I was like, oh, well, they're kind of late to the, to the argument, but I'm glad they're here. You know, it's a, it's a huge problem in America, all over the world, actually. And the third one is lack of purpose. People talk about that all the time, lack of purpose, right? So those three holes, what we call the bowling ball grip, the thing that holds a man stuck in, in inertia, in, in sad clown syndrome, they have to be broken free. So F3 is designed to break that hold. 
So the first one, the fitness, gets you out of the inconsistent fitness. It's not about obesity. It's about Pogo 30. It's about this up and down, up and down, right? It gives you a way to stay consistently fit. So it solves that first problem. Second, this male loneliness problem, you get out there and as soon as you stop throwing up, they're like, oh, these guys, you know, you, a guy will always come up to me, what we call an FNG, a friendly new guy, will come up to me at the end of workout and say, I'm sorry I held you all up because we turned back for him, whatever. And I was like, brother, you are why we're here. You didn't hold us up and you're going to be with us before you know it. Because our credo is that we leave no man behind, but we leave no man where we find him. You know, we don't say, oh, hey, Buttercup, who you are is perfect. That's who God made you. We'd say, God made you for something better than what you are, and you know it. Here's how we're going to help you get there, right? So that's that second one, that fellowship thing. That's the glue. For lonely men, you know, who, who don't really have any close male friendships, not really, right? This is that solves that problem. It fills that hole. Finally, this sense of purposelessness. Now, before I came a Christian, I went to church with my wife because being a Yankee, she's a Southern woman. She's like, it's like supper club. You just have to do it, right? So, you know, I'm doing it, but I didn't believe and neither like, didn't seem like mo- nobody else did either. You know, and instead of going to the actual service, I would, they had this big board, this electronic board to tell you all these things you could do, you know, study this book or that book. And I would see all these other guys just with their hands in their pockets, jiggling change. And I was like, ah, we're just a bunch of change jinglers. You know, we're not here to grow closer to Christ or anything else. We're here to check the block, like supper club. You know, we're just jiggling change. Uh, really, if you, if you scraped away everything else that mattered to a guy, a sad clown, and said what really matters, if he was totally honest, he'd say, I want to make sure my last check doesn't bounce before I die. I'm a check stroker. Change jingling check stroking that's not why god put us here man he put us here to be an asset to stay in the fight right to be something to love and protect our wives and children you know that's that's why he put us here to make this place better so the other place will reward us that's that is what we're here to do and i think modern man is afflicted by this lack of purpose right and because he has no purpose he engages in all sorts of misbehavior to try to distract him from it you know and without purpose, a man is lost. We're just built for it. So that's what F3 does. We call faith just simply a belief in something outside yourself. Don't be a Davist anymore, right? It seems as though, uh, I'm glad that you said that, because it seems as though the uh, F3's journey is very much related to your own journey. And it's not as though you've always been workout guy, and this is just the brand of workout that you are, are trying to capitalize on or something like that. It, 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 it started, I believe with you and Tim wanting to get in shape, right? Sure. I mean, just literally just trying to figure out a way, uh, at least superficially. To, yeah. You know, at least superficially, you know, ultimately I think we wanted these other things, but we, he and I over time became increasingly capable of verbalizing it. You know, yeah, right. At first, you're just you're you're searching for something, you're yearning for something, right. but you can't quite. But but then once Dave Redding applies the definition machine to things, right? <laughs> you're like methodically like figuring right, out like, here's right. here's what we're trying to get past, and it's the sad clown syndrome, right? right, right. And here's how we're doing it, right? We're gonna splash Merlot, and, and here's what we're shooting for, which is to become. Yeah, a leader in a man or a minivan centurion, right. which is a phrase that, that right. you've written That's about. the book I just finished, so that's my latest book. But the namer of things, it's a funny thing, is it's really buried in Genesis, hard to see, but that's what God set Adam out to do initially, was to name his creation. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so names are important. Words are incredibly important. Absolutely. And that's that's why I'm such an advocate of defending words and memorizing the principal documents that form the basis of our existence. Right. So I memorize scripture. I memorize the pattern jury instructions. I memorize the Declaration of Independence. Right. I memorize those things so that when in periods of high stress and limited visibility, I'm not searching about for the right words that are written on my heart. I don't have to stop and think. When I'm tempted towards an uncourageous and graceless act, you know, because I'm under the gun, I right on my heart is the idea that I must turn hardship into grace. That's courage. I don't have to sit there and think about it. I'm like, what's courage again? Let me look it up. Hey, there's a Bible passage that, you know, uh, that, what is it? You know, be strong and courageous. Have I not instructed you so? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For surely the world will be with you wherever, wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. That's why I memorize that. Because when I'm faced with the temptation to, to be feckless and be less than a man is, is made to be as, as all men were, in my past I gave in to that because it wasn't written on my heart. And that is what in F3 we yearn to do, is to give men kind of this, to re-energize men with these timeless truths that have always been there. There's nothing in the Bible you'll read and go, oh, hell, nobody does that anymore. Oh, we all do the same things and always have, and always have. And, And in its simplicity, if you break it down, it all comes back to that same thing. What is most important in your life? If you idolize something, whether it's drugs or pornography or whatever, that means that God isn't first right? If you think of yourself first, that means you are going to treat your brother improperly. It all comes from that. And that's because we're governed by sin. And that's why the empty tomb is so important, right? And the law is the same way. You might've noticed in our discussion, every time I bring up the Declaration of Independence, it really is simply the eternal truths. All men are created equal. That's, that's, that's it. There's not, there's not a huge distinction between the, the, the guarantees of liberty that our founding fathers proclaimed when they told King George that he was in breach of contract. That's what the declaration is. There's really not a big difference between that and the, the, the underpinning, underpinnings of Judeo-Christianity. Because we're not a theocracy, right? Because we're liberals, capital L, you're free to be a, a Jewish gentleman, you're free to be a Muslim, you're free to be a, a worshiper of the Hale-Bopp Comet. You know, whatever it is you say turns your crank. Your right to swing your fist is inalienable right up until the point of my chin. And that is, the, that is the soft touch that the American jurisprudence should be. It should define where my chin starts so that you can't swing your fist any farther. Any more than that, and we're infringing upon our inalienable rights. And it is only, it is only our belief systems and the existence of lawyers that keep it from happening. That's why I'm so deeply invested in being a litigator yeah. because we are on the leading edge of the protection of our individual rights. And right now we're in the midst, not to go too crazy, sure. of, of a periodic, because it happens, yep. populist fervor almost overcomes where the majority tyrannize the minority, happens all the time, and we're in the midst of it happening right now. And it will be the lawyers, I believe, you know, who gather together and, right. and stand up athwart of that and say, no. Yeah, we're going to... It's nothing more than a process for the nonviolent resolution of disputes. Absolutely. In the absence of our profession, the only way to solve a problem is through force. Right. And that's fundamentally what we do. Now, you have written about the hard time that you have taken a compliment. <laughs> and yeah. you And you finally have 
come around to the idea that um, somebody tries to say something nice to you that when you diminish that or deflect that you're actually kind of uh, doing a disservice to the per- you're you're devaluing uh, that person's view of things and I think it, I think this is something that is very common uh, in our society I think it's similar to when someone uh, apologizes in advance for the meal that they just cooked or uh, you know in, in uh, self deprecation runs the risk of um, diminishing the joy of others who love you right. or who love the thing that you've created. When you deflect that adoration, you are in effect um, contradicting or criticizing the judgment of those around you who have judged you to be valuable. And Having come to the realization that it's the best thing to do when somebody tries to say something nice to you, to just say thank you or to right. say I'm honored. Right. Are you proud of what you've done with F3? <laughs> it's funny. Uh, but to be proud would be wrong, right? Yeah. Well, uh, what does it mean to be proud? I mean, when you reflect on it, you've, right. you and Tim set something in motion that manifestly has made profound positive differences in the lives of literally thousands of people and it's growing all the time so is it wrong to be proud of that and 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 when I ask the question it seems to me like that's it just depends on how we define pride yeah it it absolutely does uh it's like the uh uh I think it's um it's gratification rather than pride so you know to be pride is to act is to be arrogant to take from god what is his right i'm i'm a created being uh, a pale reflection uh, of what he would have me be what his son was so every act that i do in furtherance of what he created me to be is something that brings him glory and and makes brings him joy and that joy i can reflect into so it's gratification uh i didn't do it I participated in it because uh, I was a loyal servant. That's the way I look at it. When someone, the, the thing you're referring to is this difficulty I had in the first five years when people I didn't know would thank me for the effect it had on them or their brother or their father or whatever. And I didn't know what to say. You know, so I'd engage in what we call self-effacing parentheticals. I would say, oh, well, a blind hog, you know, finds a squirrel or a nut, whatever, you know, blind, you know, stop watch is, is wrong, is right twice a day, all those things. And I could see in their faces, you know, I'm denying them the, the service of allowing them to provide a sincere, to sincere gratitude for a blessing in their lives. And the reason I was doing that is because I was centering myself in it. And uh, the, the, the vignette that I think you're referring to is when I, uh, I, was, I was in one of those situations where it was about to happen. I knew it was going to happen. And uh, I remembered this thing I'd read about George W. Bush and just, you know, to be fair, it was not exactly my favorite president, but I admired many things about his character. One of which was when he would meet a large group of people and they'd be all excited and fawning over him, you know, he would say, honored, honored, or I'm honored to meet you. And the reason why you say it is because he was saying it as the president of the United States, not as George, right? He was, he recognized that they were, they were, their excitement was in being a citizen of this, of these United States that had, that had the great opportunity to meet our chief magistrate. And it wasn't him, it was the position he held, and he was honored to hold it. So I, I draped myself in that, and I tried it in this situation that I was describing, 
And I had these people, they were crying, thanking me for what had been done. Their husband, their son, or whatever had been pulled from drug addiction. I had nothing to do with it whatsoever. It was a group in Columbia, South Carolina that, you know, I, I'd never even been to this mission that they were talking about. They just wanted to thank the person they thought was in charge. That's it. Whether I was or not didn't matter. And, and for the first time, I just said, honored. A woman hugged me and said, my God, you brought my husband back to me. I said, honored, honored honored and I felt so good about it and I walked back to the man that we're talking about and I and I said you know uh, I met your family it was great I really meant it and I said you must feel great to feel free from drug addiction and I and he said yeah I said I'm glad Efrey helped you with that and he said Efrey didn't do that the mission did it mission got me sober I said well what did Efrey do he said Efrey gave me my manhood back and I said I don't understand that and he said well, you guys came and started this workout, and then three or four weeks into it, you turned over the leadership to peer-led to us. I said, yeah, that's, it's a core principle. It's what we do. He goes, we're drug addicts. No one's trusted us with anything for years, and they shouldn't. My family on the hill over there, they hope like crazy this sticks, but they've been down the road with me too many times to, to not be afraid that I'm going to burn them, and that's just the way it is. You guys were the first guys that trusted any of us in years. Without trust, there can be no manhood. And I walked out of there with a new realization. You know, this is five years ago. That that's what we're actually doing. That somehow in our culture, men have, have been encouraged to idolize something above what God put them here, there to be. They've given up on their masculinity. They've been told it's toxic. They've been, they've been told that the very thing God made them is somehow the thing that tears us apart rather than the thing that holds us together. And that is, that is really my underlying mission in life is to return that. And it's, this will go all the way back to what we talked about. When I felt that horrible feeling years ago when I came to Christ outside the Harris Teeter that I couldn't live up to it, I ultimately read in the Bible, and it's, and it's Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter realizes that Jesus isn't a carpenter. He pulls in this huge catch, this miraculous catch. He's been out fishing, catches nothing. And he, he realizes he's in, the, he's in the midst of the Messiah, the one his faith system predicted would come. And he says, get away from me, Lord. I, I'm too dirty. I, that was the feeling I had, exact feeling I had. And Jesus says, don't worry. I will make you a fisher of men. And that's what he did. He missionalized him. Right? He returned to him his masculinity. And every time I participate in that, whether directly, because I, you know, I mentor men, or indirectly in, a, in this organization that Tim and I set in motion, or indirectly, it is my honor to receive the thankfulness and gratitude of the people affected. Not for me, but for the creator who set me forth to do it. And that's how I learned to just say honored. Whether it's an F3 or if I do a good job in a case, I just, and somebody compliments me, I just say honored because it's not me they're thanking. It's, I believe, God's representative here on earth on the legal side to seek substantial justice in a broken world and on the leadership side to return men to the, to the masculinity that they were designed to do so we can love and protect our families and be an asset to our communities. Dave Redding, <laughs> I am honored that you would be uh, with me uh, on the Steve Dunn podcast. Thank you for being here today. And I am so honored as well. Thank you. Buddy.